we had like let's say one or two bank partnerships and one bank partner said i don't want to work anymore we are shutting down our acquiring business that happened uh and we had just one bank partner and like hundreds of our merchants would suddenly stop working next day because this bank was going to pull the plug hey there i'm snigdha from the kens podcast team thank you for tuning into this episode of first principles it features harshil mathur the co-founder of razorpay in his own words razorpay is india's first full stack financial solutions company but what does that mean i am going to let him do the explaining but before we get there i have something special for everyone who's tuned in since this episode talks about razorpay's product development how it finds its customers and builds with a purpose we thought you might be interested in reading a detailed report on razorpay by my colleague shashwat mohanty the report sheds light on the challenges razorpay faces in realizing its new banking dreams so just for this coming week we have made that story free which means it is out of the paywall you will find the link to it in this podcast show notes Oh, and before I finally get out of your way, if you are new here, do not forget to follow First Principles on whichever podcast platform you tune into. Every two weeks, we drop a brilliant and a very insightful interview. And we also have this other weekly podcast called Cost to Company, where my friends Sneha and Shrivar take turns to track the ever-evolving Indian workplace. All right, that is it from me. Over to Rohan. we want to be seen as a money movement company ashil you told us this in a story back in 2017 if i'm not mistaken you were 26 years old back then and you were the ceo and founder of razorpay as you are now is that still what you see yourself as or razorpay a money movement company yeah it is broadly it's still the same i mean of course the vision has expanded a lot in the last couple of years and the expansion keeps happening <laughs> but the core premise of what razorpay is hasn't changed that we are here to make money movement simpler and easier whether it is receiving money sending money managing money whatever it is it, we are here to uh, simplify a money movement at the end of the day that's that that premise hasn't changed could i ask you to explain what razorpay is in one line if possible yeah <laughs> so we are a Uh, we are a company that is aiming to build the full stack financial ecosystem for internet businesses um that is our as as put it as a broad vision of where we are after um the idea being that sorry hold that thought like i i want to come into that like and and at two steps firstly full stack it is something that we hear all the time everyone from a full stack developer to a full stack company I'm going to ask you to explain what does full stack mean yeah. generally or in this context. Yeah, so And secondly, go. what's an internet business? Yeah. Right? How is it different from a regular business? I want you to explain these two things. Yeah. So, um 
let me start with the full stack aspect, right? Like when I say full stack finance ecosystem, I mean that if you start a business and I'm talking about internet businesses tomorrow um, and you want to manage your money, Razorpay should be able to do everything that you do with money under one single platform. So you don't need to go to anyone else for anything to do with money. So to break it down, you have to receive money via your payments company. You want to pay your uh, pay salaries via your payroll company. You want to pay your vendors via your vendor management company. You want to uh, do reimbursements. You want to pay your taxes. We are we are providing everything and more. Uh, you want to get access to money. We help you get access to credit. You have extra money. You have raised money, and you want to deploy it somewhere. We manage your treasury. So the idea being that by what I mean by full stack is that if I pick up a business and look at what all aspects around it uh, the money touches, then can Razor Pay play a role in enabling and simplifying all of that? It doesn't mean that we are the service provider of all of it. For example, the credit might come from a loan provider, from an NBFC, from a bank. So we are not necessarily the one giving you credit, but we are the ones enabling that for you. So you only talk to Razor Pay and we bring all of that under one single platform to you. So that is what I mean by full stack. Um, to break down the internet business aspect, and and that is where our focus has been slightly different that we want to enable uh, any business that's that's primarily built on top of internet that's whose distribution and whose scale up is dependent on uh, on technology being the rail on on top of which that distribution happens and the reason i qualify that is because there are a lot of businesses in this country i we don't aim to be able to manage money for all of them but any business who either is built on internet or is transitioning towards internet will be there, right? So so an easy example is an internet startup. A more complex example is, let's say, an old school um, business house who's now building an internet first distribution system. So it could be an insurance company who's now going digital first. We want to be, uh, we want to manage the financial system for them as well. All right. Thank you for that. And the context of internet business is interesting because the Ken itself is an internet business. Yeah. And the first time we met was in 2016, September 2016, at your office in Koramangla, which is still your office. And we met because we were trying to figure out, we were about to launch, we were a month, couple of months away from launch, and we were trying to figure out how do we capture payments from subscribers and how do we create recurring payments. And we started working with Razorpay back then. Interesting anecdote or side detail, in October 2016, we started working with you. October 2017, all our subscriptions still worked, which means they renewed. October 2022, most of them didn't renew. And we know the reason for that is because the RBI mandate on recurring subscriptions. So in many ways, we seem to have regressed uh, when it comes to the ability to handle recurring payments back from 2016 when we met to today. Um, I also want to bring up another factoid which you told us back in 2017 again that the average decline rate of a transaction in India was as high as 30% while in the UK back then it was around 8%. That's pretty bad. I mean, where do we stand today on that? Yeah, so it's a, uh, a UK or US might not be a direct examples, right? I gave that number because it's important to look at it in that frame of reference. Uh, but there are a lot more challenges in India. Like a lot of drop-offs in India happen because the internet doesn't work. Right? Like you don't face those challenges in in markets like US and UK. Right? Like with all the penetration and everything, you still have those challenges. 
it has gone down significantly. I think we are now at a level of around 15% declines. Uh, but I want to qualify that, that there are certain segments that decline is still very high, right? So at the overall industry level, we are at less than 15% declines. But there are certain segments where we still see very high declines. For example, anywhere where the transition happens on road, the decline is very high. So anywhere the transition is happening outside home or outside office, let's say during cab booking or things like that, so where there is no stable Wi-Fi no or wifi. broadband. Yes. There the decline rate goes as high as 30-40% still because our connectivity issues are still very high. But when you bring it where the internet connection is all sorted, you have a Wi-Fi at home and everything. There's one part of the stack which you don't control which yet. Which we don't control. <laughs> so your Wi-Fi is amazing, everything is doing well. Then the decline rate goes down to less than 15%. It's still, there's still some journey to be done there. But there's a longer journey. All right, eight to fifteen percent is almost double, which is yes. a good enough number, and it's progress. And I think we should always look at the trend rather than the absolute value. How does Razorpay make money? Yeah, so it's simple, right? Like there are multiple ways, but the basic way is the transaction way, where we make money on every transaction that happens on our platform. We either charge for the transaction itself, or we charge for value-added services that we provide around the transaction. For example. Like take an example of recurring billing, we charge additional for subscription services that we provide or subscription management services that we provide. Or in case of a typical credit card transaction, we'll charge uh, we, we'll charge a service fee for every transaction that happens on our platform. There are some other ways through which we, that we make money for some of our newer products. Uh, for example, our payroll service, we charge a SaaS fee, uh, which is let's say about a dollar, dollar and a half per employee per month. So those are our SaaS uh, products. Um, the other aspect, the other kind of uh, money that we make is when we cross-sell or upsell other financial products on top of Razorpay. For example, when we upsell credit on top of Razorpay, then we earn a, a fees from the credit providers for enabling loans through our platform. When we provide banking services through our uh, through our uh, base, then we earn a service fee from whoever is providing the end instrument, uh, a referral fee or a marketing fee from them. So those are some additional revenue opportunities. The core remains transaction-based. Got it. So that's fees transa fees on transactions, commissions on, you know, these deals that originate through your stack, and interestingly, subscriptions themselves. Yep. You, from enabling subscriptions, you now sell subscriptions of your own as well. Yep. Thank you for that. I'm going to go through a bunch of quick questions to just capture Razorpay's uh, scope. How old is the company? We started in 2015, so about eight years old. How many employees does it have today? 2,400. What is its current revenue? So we don't disclose revenue figures officially. Of course, it's still public in some shape and form mm -hmm. uh, because of our filings, but we don't disclose officially. All right. How fast are you growing? Uh, our growth rate right now is close to about 100, uh, close to 90 to 110%. All year right. Year. What's your valuation? Uh, we last valued at seven and a half billion dollars. How much venture capital have you raised till date? Close to around six hundred million. And how old are you? <laughs> Thirty-one. Are you married? No, not yet. You're Getting get married next year. All right, congratulations. My next question would have been: Do you have kids? We no. hope to have like a follow-up podcast interview with you at some time. How many co-founders? Uh, are there at Razorpay. Yeah, too. Me and Shashank. Thanks for that initial bit about Razorpay. We'll switch gears now to some questions about your personal life. Tell us about your family history and how did you get into entrepreneurship? 
Yeah. So I grew up in Jaipur, you know, typical middle class family. My dad uh, was working in a bank, um, uh, State Bank of India as a clerk. Uh, my mom was a homemaker. And um, uh, I grew up in and around Jaipur, uh, did my schooling from there, got selected into IIT like a typical middle class guy, boy working hard to get into IIT. Uh, finally got into IIT. Um, wanted computer science, but missed my missed the rank a little. So had to go into mechanical. Um, uh, was in Rudki for four years, working in mechanical branch. But um, from very early days, from schooling days, had a very deep interest in computers. So I used to code from 10th, 11th standard. Uh, when I went to college as well, of course, I got the branches mechanical, had zero interest in mechanical. So used to spend all my evenings writing code, building stuff. And and that is how I met Shashank. Uh, because while he was in computer science, um, I was in mechanical. I used to spend a lot of time coding. And I was searching for a way to get some mentorship and guidance um, uh, on code because I wouldn't get through formal channels. Was Shashank and you batchmates? No, he was a senior to me in college. All right. Um, so I went to this, uh, there was a hobbies club section in, in, uh, in IIT where I would go and try to find a bunch of folks who had similar interest in programming and found about five, seven folks there, including Shashank, who, and uh, an interesting story, maybe you should hear it better from Shashank, but while he was in computer science officially, he also didn't like the the college things that professors taught. It was very theoretical. So he was also looking for like-minded folks through which he could spend his time actually writing code and not just reading theory about code. So we met there. And that was my first interaction with Shashank. And uh, we both seemed to gel well on the idea that we wanted to write code in our free time to build something that we like to build. And um, yeah, that was that was the the start of our friendship or our relationship uh, in some ways. What got you first interested in computer science and in coding? Uh, yeah, it's hard to answer. I really can't put my finger on it. I think... Um, I, I didn't have a computer at home and uh, when I was growing up. And That's my question. Yeah. So in fourth, fifth standard, I uh, my dad put me in a computer class uh, uh, near uh, near my home. And, and it was a very s- simple class around MS-DOS and Word and stuff like that. And I really enjoyed that. I used to love going there. And it was, um, I, I went there for summers and I loved it so much. I started going there every day. Uh, after summers as well, and uh, and my dad saw that I had a lot of interest in it, so so he kept he kept the course on, and I learned DOS, I learned basic programming. This was I was in I think fifth standard or something, and I started learning like basic tools around computers and stuff. It was nothing complex, just very simple stuff. Of course, I liked gaming on computers, so I used to spend a lot of time after classes in playing games with folks there. Uh, my proper interesting computer happened in I think seventh standard um, uh, when uh, because I used to love uh, computers so much. My dad gave me a challenge that if you win the scholarship in seventh, uh, my in my school, anyone who got the highest marks across all sections would get a scholarship. If in a scholarship, I'll buy you a computer. So I typically used to be second or third. Uh, that year, I worked really hard. I got ninety nine percent, and my dad had to buy me a computer because I won the scholarship. And that uh, started me, uh, then I got full interest in computer because I had a computer at home. So okay. I used to spend all my days and nights uh, just uh, playing games or writing stuff or learning coding, 
uh, internet came much later around i think around 10th standard yeah. or something but uh, used to spend a lot of time on on the computer right your first job if i am not mistaken based on my research was with schlumberger yeah would i be wrong in saying that getting into mechanical engineering and getting your first job with schlumberger was actually a good thing for you because it would not like you were essentially looking for an outlet on the software side and you didn't find it had your first job been with hypothetically say a microsoft or i don't know google salesforce or paypal perhaps you would have found the outlet that you wanted in your job and and how long did i you were like what 9 months in your yeah. first job yeah yeah so slumberger happened because i was in mechanical the exactly. companies that will come for placement and open up for you were mechanical companies slumberger was one of the best companies yes absolutely for mechanical so i got placed into that day one into the job i realized this is not a job for me <laughs> uh, i have a i have very different interests but uh, in some ways you're right um, i think because my core uh, uh, academics were never around computers and i was always a distracted child right so i didn't like what i was made to read i would want to do something else uh, uh, so so it is kind of true that uh, because my core uh, was never computers it was a it was a hobby for me and i would do it because i liked it not because i was being forced to do it so whether it was during college um, i would spend my entire like my classes would get over around 6 pm and from 7 pm onwards i would sit in this programming section and would work till like 2 am 3 am writing code not <laughs> spending any time studying or anything uh, because i loved that a lot more than the studies that will happen during the day um, and similarly when i got in schlumberger i realized this is not really a job for me so i would do the minimum it took to maintain my job and i spent all my evenings weekends writing code talking to shashank seeing what all where was shashank on. working by shashank was working in microsoft uh, in C- in seattle so would spend a lot of almost all of my, my free time talking to him and figuring out what side projects could we do what things we could try and that's how in some ways recipe got started right and uh, based on my research when you folks decided you and shashank decided to start the first idea that you had was a social crowdfunding platform yeah right tell us about that how did so that was, become razor pay yeah so it was not even a startup idea um by the way like let me clarify like when we were working on these free times and doing things we were not thinking of a startup we were just doing things for fun we wanted to use our free time writing something and this was something we used to do since college in college i wrote a lot of code and lot of applications when you graduated in college what was you know your favorite language uh, php which today's developers will look down upon <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when you decided to stinker around when you were at schlumberger and shashank was at microsoft what were your respective language preferences or strengths yes we would dabble around with multiple things whatever looked cool <laughs> at that Got point it. of time so i was uh, looking a lot at front end that time front end was mostly being written in angular so mm. i would spend most of my uh, most of my time in angular js uh, general css html on the front end side uh, i was writing a little bit of backend code but shashank was mostly looking at backend uh, so there was that complementary aspect between the two of you i mean initially one of you became the front end expert and the other one became the backend expert is it yes he's the front end is easier to rewrite and i would trust uh, <laughs> shashank a lot more with core backend he's a better programmer than i am i am i, I was always certain of that so i wanted him to focus on the core backend which is harder to move around which 
needs the right architecture on day one. And I would code mostly on the front end side where even if you get things wrong, it's not very hard to juggle things around. Uh, yeah, I think that is how the thought process went. So how do you guys end up starting? Yeah, so as I was saying, like we, since college, we used to write stuff just for fun. Um, in college, I think we wrote, for example, um, a code. Uh, we we wrote a programming stack, uh, uh, what we called a video streaming system. Um, so we connected a dish TV to a computer and created a platform through which we could distribute the stream to everyone in the in the hostel. And people loved it. Like we had like 1,000, 2,000. It's a simple version of Hotstar. Uh, 1,000, 2,000 people watching uh, TV, uh, watching matches, cricket matches day in, day out. And people really loved it because before that, if you wanted to watch a cricket match in college, you had to go down to a TV room and yeah. sit there. You couldn't watch it in your room. So we wrote that and that's how we, both me and Shishang, started to write code for fun. That uh, And this got so much traction. We kept maintaining it, building it. It still runs today, by the way. We handed it over to, a, to the student group there. And uh, so when we went to, when he was working at Microsoft, we used to spend time um, writing similar stuff that what can we do which is just nice and people can use and it doesn't have any monetary outcome and anything. And one of the things that we liked at that point of time, we looked at US, there was GoFundMe that had become really yeah. popular. And we used to see in people in India used to share these photos that one like equal to one rupee and so on and so forth. And That's we right. felt like, we, like people in India are really struggling a lot of times and they need help. And there are people who have enough spare to put five rupees, 10 rupees behind something like this. Can we create something uh, to enable that? So that was a social crowdfunding idea. Uh, again, it was not a startup. It was something that we will build and deploy and just maintain. People can list stuff. People can pay for stuff. That's it. It was simple, uh, like a, the way a, a developer's utopia that you just build and deploy and that's it. You don't want to get into anything like anything else. The messy part of creating a business around it. Yeah, yeah. We were not thinking of hiring 20 people and building stuff around it. We were two techies who were just writing code for fun. So when we started doing that, we realized that payments was a very complex problem that that we couldn't get through, right? And and in US, we looked at, uh, Shashank was in US at that point of time, we looked at US and it was very simple. You get a Stripe account, you get a Braintree account, you get something like that, you plug it in and done. And you could write code on top of it. But in India, we figured out that the systems were not built for such hobby projects. You couldn't really... Uh, sign up and create a link or create a page and let people use uh, you for uh, accepting payments or disbursements and things like that and became an extremely complex problem. We spent a lot of time um, figuring out this and the outcome was that this can't be done. Like uh, there's no way we can get this through. Uh, we need to register a company. We need to apply for a proper license and approval. The people who we applied for a payment gateway form they wanted to come to our office, see how we operate, see what products we sell. And we said, we are two guys sitting in two different countries. Uh, we don't have an office and stuff like that. And then that got us thinking that like most startups start like us. Like nobody has an office on day one. Nobody has an ops team on day one. And nobody, most importantly, nobody has that much time. Uh, you can't wait for three, six months just to get payments in uh, into, into your startup. We felt, how does everyone else do it? Like, are we doing something wrong? We went online and this was a time and Facebook groups were really popular. So you used to go to Bangalore startups, Pune startups, those groups and said like what other people do. And we figured out almost everyone was struggling with the same problem. Um, and the challenge was that like, while there were a lot of payment companies in India, uh, most of them were focused on large enterprises because that's where the money was. That's where the volumes were. Nobody really cared about this 2%, 3% startup who was 
doing something on the side to enable payments for them and actually i want to pause you here yeah. and like you know read out an anecdote on exactly this from a story we've done on you all gateways we contacted had setting up charges of 10000 to 15000 said rajesh bora co-founder of goa based roadhouse hostels that operates five hostels for backpackers we were no priority to them the lowest rung person on the sales team handled us and we had no leverage to bargain for better rates as our transactions were low this is what you're describing yeah. right everyone like the internet businesses the small individuals were all too small fry for the larger yeah. payment gateways yeah and and see, nobody was wrong like if they are all a business at the end of the day like the majority volumes used to come from the large enterprise companies and the problems of the large enterprise companies were different very different from a young startup so when you go to a large enterprise and you're selling payments to them they don't care if it takes 3 months to onboard because they themselves will take 6 months to integrate right <laughs> but a young startup wants to go live quickly they have a developer sitting right there who can code things out in one day wants to go live tomorrow test things out and absolutely i remember that's how we did it at the can as well after we met i think within a week we had everything set up and done including our verification integration of the code configuration of the plugin testing payments and we were good to go yeah, and that's how most startups want to be and you want to go live quickly and see whether your product works or not you don't want to spend 3 months figuring out payments when in 3 months your company could literally die right so um so that was a problem and and there, and then we even when we got through that the way the product was built the way the product was available was very different than what a startup needs so it was built in a standard fashion but most startups have very different use cases a can itself was a very different use case than what a typical shopping cart company would need um similarly when we Uh, the what we wanted to build like a social crowdfunding platform it is not like a simple checkout page that you buy three products you add it to your cart and you buy you it's a very different kind of payment experience that you want to build and the only way you can build these unique payment experiences when you have an api based payment integration where people can plug in and choose to use the payments in the way they want to we as a company a payments company can never decide how those payments are going to be used on field but at that point of time payment integrations were very prescriptive that this is how you need to integrate um, I, i don't know if you have ever tried a payment integration in that point of time the way it used to work is that if you sign up for a payment company they'll send you a pdf file which will be the api reference in some form but it's not really an api reference it will tell you how the payment integration works and then they'll sell you and send you a sample code of 100 lines you are supposed to decipher how this sample code works copy paste lines of code from there and make your payments work there was no api there's no website through which you could, could go and see Okay, these are the fields that you can submit. These are the fields that you can get. Then this is how you can customize it and change it. And this is like we were not inventing something out of thin air. This was very standard in US. This was very standard in Europe, but nothing like this existed in India. And that felt very odd to us. And that is where we started thinking that this is a bigger opportunity than we can imagine because every young startup starting in India would need this. And some of these companies will grow up to become really big. So. it sounds like an amazing opportunity why is nobody going after it that is, that was the basic question in our head and what happened then once you both of you came to this conclusion what did you do yeah so the first question that we had was maybe it is by design maybe the regulations don't allow this did you i mean my question was also about you were both working did yes. you decide to quit your jobs did no, you no, do a side gig <laughs> we didn't quit our job so we first decided to spend more time researching the problem so we first thing that we wanted to be clear that maybe the regulations don't allow any of this so then what can we do like regulations are rules of the game you can't play around it so we went online we read rbi 
discussion papers, we read RBI notifications, we talked to a lot of people and we figured out that none of this was by regulation. The regulations were very fairly broad and they, they didn't restrict that how do you onboard or how do you, what form you give the product in and what form you give the integration in. So that was out of the door. Then we figured out why, why is nobody else looking at it? And when we looked at the market, like 80-90% of volume at that point of time used to come from large enterprise businesses. It was not worth it for somebody to even explore this. And that's probably the reason that nobody had ever gone after it, at least from the traditional industry. The third thing that we did was that we started testing that will people want to use us if we build something like this. So I started posting in these same groups like Bangalore Startups and Pune Startups that, hey, we are building something in payments. We would love to talk to you if you were open to it. And we spoke to a lot of people who said that, hey, if you build something like this, where I can use an API, go live quickly and can go live with minimal um, issues, uh, with minimal amount of time, then I would love to use something like that. And while we spoke to a lot of young startups, even a lot of larger startups uh, told us, I spoke, I remember speaking to Archit from ClearTax at that point of time, and he had just got into YC and he got the same input that, hey, I struggled through this uh, and I finally found a way to get payments. But if somebody were to solve it, I would love to switch over. So that, that, that gave us a lot of confidence that this is a large enough problem. It is solvable. You went to Y Combinator as well. Yes. Much later. Uh, much later. Got it. Yeah. So then uh, we, uh, me and Shishank started building the product. We were still in our jobs, but we started building the product on the side. So again, using our weekends to build the product. The most complex aspect was that while we were building the product, we still didn't have access to bank APIs and bank integrations. So the way, uh, and this is interesting that Almost all payment integrations before Razorpay looked exactly the same and Razorpay was very different. And the reason for that is typically how payment gateways start is that you go to a bank, you get access to their integration kit and then people build a layer on top of it. So almost all payment gateways look similar because all banking it's APIs look similar. built on top of yes, so something which is given to you by yes, the bank. So the bank APIs look similar and you build a layer on top of it. So everything looks similar. Because we didn't have access to bank APIs, in some ways it was a blessing that we didn't know how the backend looks like, but we knew what the merchant needs. So we built it as built, built it with the view of if I were I was a startup and if I wanted to integrate a payment gateway, how would should it look like? How should the API look like? How should the integration look like? What would I want to do? And that's how we built the first version of the product. Uh, parallelly, I started talking to banks and trying to figure out can we get in. So we still hadn't left our jobs because we didn't know that we can get through this banking side problem. It seemed like a very complex black box because none of us had any idea on how this this side of the world works. So we, I literally just walked into the SDFC branch next door to my home in Jaipur and said, hey, I want to start a payment gateway. And the guy looked at me and confusingly and he said, do you want a payment gateway? I said, no, I want to start a payment gateway. And he had no idea, like, how can you start a payment gateway? I mean, of course, uh, we later realized that these things are handled by specialized branches in only specific cities. So, so I spoke to that guy. He said, no, I can't help you, but I'll try to find and call back. I went to Axis. I went to ICICI. I went to SBI, almost every bank. And some of them connected me to some people. Some of them said no directly. So it was a lot of struggle. And I spent almost six months just running to banks and jumping through these hoops to figure out, figure out how do we get there? And if we got rejected at one place, we try to find somebody senior on LinkedIn and reach out to him. And then we got rejected there. So we found somebody else senior in some other bank. And we were speaking to so many banks at that point of time. Which was the first bank where you managed to crack. Yeah, that. Uh, so it's an interesting story. I remember the date. It was 6th of Feb, 2014. Um, uh, we got a meeting with a senior guy in HDFC Bank. And while this guy was senior, he was relatively younger um, in, in banking world. 
and he understood what we meant by startups and by digital companies and what we wanted to do. So he was the first guy who gave us, he was, in the meeting, he said, okay, I can give you an in-principle approval. You'll still have to uh, fulfill a lot of, um, of responsibilities and uh, submit a security deposit and everything, but I can give you an in-principle approval for you to start operating. I remember that date because the next day I went to Schlumberger and left my job. <laughs> like literally, uh, because that was the only thing we were waiting for. The product we were already building up, everything else was getting set up the right way. But was it still just the two of you? It's still just the two of us. So I left my job, uh, moved into this full time, told Shashank that you should also leave your job, come down. Now we have a bank integration. We know how to build the product. We have talked to customers. We have all the experts, right? We can jump into this full time. So Shashank took, a, he still took about three months to leave his job and come down. He was waiting for his Microsoft shares to West. Uh, and then he came down to Jaipur and we started building this from Jaipur in my parents' home. Fascinating. Razorpay comes across as a company which is extremely product-led. I mean, the idea itself of the company, you've got various products along the way. I remember you'd launch various products. There was Smart Collect, which was for reconciliation of payments. There was Razorpay Root, which was automating vendor payments. Are these two products still around? Yeah, yeah then there's yeah. Razorpay X, which was a current account product. There's Razorpay Capital there's Razorpay Payroll. Yeah. I want to talk about product, the concept of product velocity and I think product penetration, which is mm -hmm. something that you look at. What is your philosophy around product velocity? How many, like, how do you track, how do you look at how fast you're developing products, how fast you're launching products, how fast you're able to innovate around products? Are there metrics inside that help you understand? Are there philosophies that help you understand how you how well you're doing on products? Yeah, it's it's a really hard problem to track, right? Like I think the way I would say it is that when I look back, it always seems like that we have built a lot of products, but when you look inside, it always feels like we are running really slow. Right? Like every day, I would go back to my product team and hey, we are running really slow. We need to move faster and we need to do that. So. I think it's a, it's kind of a dichotomy because I, like whenever I've looked back, there's no period of time that I can say that, hey, we were moving slow. But when, I, when you ask me in current, it always feels like we are moving slow. And I think this is a lot to do with the way uh, both me and Shashank look at um, the company. And we have, we have been product founders. The only thing we knew when we started was how to build products, right? Like everything else we learned, sales and marketing and ops and everything we've learned along the way. Product is the one thing that we really knew how to build on day one. And that has been our push internally always that the only thing that differentiates us at the end of the day is how can we constantly innovate and create newer products faster than anyone else in the market. Like that's the only thing. People will always catch up to what we have built in the past. And the only way to stay ahead is building something new or something different constantly that keeps us ahead of the curve. Um, the way we, we track this is like, of course, at like now we have, of course, a more structured fashion. So uh, we... We have a very large product roadmap, like the number of things that we want to do. And every year we keep refreshing it, that we keep adding more things to that laundry list of things that we would want to do at some point of time. And it all stems from that core vision that, okay, we want to uh, be the full stack financial services company for these businesses, for internet businesses. So what all does that undertake? What all are the moving parts of that? And I, the way I keep refreshing that is that by constantly talking to our customers, what all, what, what all, Aspects of money flow that they undertake are complex or take a lot of time or can be made better and then keep adding to that laundry list. And then every year we'll pick up 
items from that and say that this is what we want to do this year. These are the things. Of course, things will change through the year. And and then, of course, it's buckets down into our quarterly goals and our uh, monthly goals and stuff like that on what gets delivered when. Um, so that's the basic process on how these things work. One of the things that uh, that happens for us is um, even even with all of this and, and and all this planning and everything, things will always keep changing. The fin fintech ecosystem, especially the payments ecosystem, is is constantly changing. So, if we just stuck to the roadmap that we sent out at the start of the year or start of quarter, then we'll miss the bus. We'll be happy that we delivered what we started with, but some massive change that happened, we will miss out on that. For example, recurring payment went through a massive change with RBI, uh, the RBI notification. Tokenization went through a massive change. So one of the things that we always keep aside is some flexibility in whatever plan we have kept out because of the ecosystem changes. Um, so whenever something like that happens, we sit down again and say that this is more important than these three things that we had set out at the start of this quarter or start of this year. Let's keep these three thing, things aside and pick this up on priority. And that ensures that while we have a very planned product velocity, we have enough flexibility built in or ecosystem changes to be able to pounce on those ecosystem changes and not get let them get stuck that, okay, we have our plan for this quarter, so we'll pick it up next quarter. By that time, we might lose out on that. And that's why like in all the major changes that have happened, while some companies will a be in and some companies will not pick those up, Razorpay, you'll find consistently in all of those changes being there, anything that is major for the payment ecosystem, Razorpay will be there because we'll be, find a way to modify our roadmap to fill that change in. All right. Are there products that have failed, big product bets that have failed in the last, like since you've started out, which you assume? Yeah, a lot of them. What are some of them? Yeah, so um, when we started, like I think on payment side, we added a bunch of four or five products. I think in some ways I'll say, I know Ken is a big user of it, but I'll say our subscription product failed uh, because it didn't get as much traction as we started out with among the four or five products that we launched parallelly. The another product that it, took a lot of time for us to, we found a way to eventually make it some success, but it took a lot of time for it to get success. After a lot of time, we had parked it and then we picked it up again when the market caught up. So initially when we launched, we thought that the subscription market is huge, but it was fairly small. There were a very limited number of companies who were actually doing subscriptions. And so we didn't get as much traction as we hoped for. So we parked it. And then in last two, three years, the market caught up, subscription started becoming big. And we picked and, it up again. And then it fell off again. And it fell off and again, but it still created an opportunity for us to right. build a product around it. For a long time, it was not there. Another product that we launched uh, in that time was invoicing. Uh, that um, that we aimed to... What was that? What was the product? Uh, the aim was to transition B2B invoicing to Razorpay. That instead of... Like was to, this Smart Collect? No, it is no. what we call invoices. Oh, it's just not called invoices. Part of the product, no, okay. <laughs> but it was launched... Sorry, with, I, I must ask you, how many... Like, if I were to ask you how many products are there at Razorpay, can you put a number to it? Very hard to put. Like, there are so many things that you might call products, some of the things might be called features. But base products, I'll say at least 15 to 20. All right. Uh, which, are, which I'll call base products that they are tracked independently for their own PMF. All right. Um, will be 15 to 20. Uh, so, for example, when we launched invoicing, we, we launched four or five products together, Smart Collect, Invoices, uh, Subscriptions, and, and Links. Uh, invoicing failed in some form because... We hope to transition a lot of B2B invoices to Razorpay. That, so when you send out an invoice today uh, for, let's say, you get an invoice for rent or coffee payments and stuff like that in a business, then we hope to send an invoice through Razorpay and people could click and make the payment and be done with it. It didn't take off for a variety of ways, but the primary reason was that B2B 
customers still want don't want to pay make payments digitally so so with all the efforts and everything we did uh, the customer base wasn't ready to use digital uh, systems for it so yeah there have been a lot of failures like that through the journey right how do you decide when to sunset a product or to stop working on it are there any heuristics that tell you when to do that yeah so that is a hard problem and honestly speaking we have rarely sunset a product the the sunsetting in the fintech world the way typically we do is that we put the product on maintenance mode where we won't build new features on it we won't build new capabilities on it but we let the product run and we just maintain it we still we need some bandwidth to ensure that bug fixing happens and hot fixing happens but pure shutdown wouldn't happen because we don't start a product till we know at least it will get some basic traction so our product journey starts the way our startup journey started that we first get customers so when we started invoicing for example we first got at least 5 6 customers who were willing to use it we got first got 5 6 customers for example for subscription i remember when ken started using subscriptions we didn't even have a full fledged product right you were one of the early customers who agreed that you would use this if we had built it in the right way right so so this is how we start typically start product that we have some basic customers so when we launch the product it will not have zero traction it will have some traction the traction might not be good enough for us to continue to build upon it so we'll put the product into after a year or so if we see that it's not hitting the goals we set out for it to hit it's not worth the bandwidth that we are spending on it to build new features and new product uh, capabilities and stuff like that then we'll pack it into maintenance mode how much of a role da- did you going to y combinator play in this philosophy because this also aligns very closely with the y combinator philosophy of don't build big products figure out if you can build something small for at least two paying customers three paying customers and if that works then scale it to 10 and then that works uh, when did you go by the way to y combinator yeah so um, when we started the company um, uh, in 2014 is when we started working on it full time um, we still hadn't gone live and around october november that year the y combinator uh, application period process opened up and we applied for it like we had zero hopes of getting into it because we, before us only one india focused company had got into y combinator was clear tax and they were already live when they got into y combinator they were already being used by a lot of people for filling taxes we were not even live we had zero customers we had zero live transactions and back then at least i don't know how it is now y combinator used to prefer yeah. if you have something working and running to show them even before you get in yeah prefer that it's just easier for like any investor is just easier to bet on a company that has some customers so we applied for it and to our surprise we got through and uh, jan to march 2015 we were in yc and we did our launch during then we our first live transaction happened in march 2015 when we fulfilled all the bank conditions and we were able to do our first live customer uh, uh, at that point of time and you're right like yc played a very important role in this philosophy because yc has a basic philosophy called make something people want it sounds very simple and the idea of that is that talk to the customers find what they need build it get traction and then scale it up like that's the basic philosophy or make something people want i think it has been a core aspect of our product philosophy that like we don't build a product till we have at least few customers who say that they would want to use it and the, the and the first version of the product is as basic and as minimal needed to get that customer live right like so uh, and then we do build v2 v3 whatever it takes to scale it up further that's the general philosophy and you're right it comes a lot from yc there's also the the other side of this which is equally important which is yes build something which people want and double down on it and continue but there's also an almost brutal opposite of that which is if something is not working 
have the courage to recognize that and to accept it and to stop working there which is really hard especially in established companies because there is this mentality or like you know uh, feeling or emotion that this is something that we've built we've got to support it so the willingness to step back from it and say why do this it makes no sense it's it's equally important yeah and like like i said like we put a lot of projects on maintenance mode and it's always an emotional decision because because when you start building a pro- product you talk to few customers who have said that they love it and because of that you always have that belief that there will be more customers like this like we are just there always is dichotomy that is our product not doing well or are we not able to reach out to the customers who need it right and and a lot of times there will be arguments on this between product teams and business teams and product teams will say you are not able to get us the right customers and the business teams will say you have not built the right product that those customers need and at some point of time you have to take a step back and say we have given it enough time it's not happening right so let's park it and move on uh, it gets emotional for people who are involved in that product a lot of times but like i'll give an example on from early days that i faced myself right so when we started building razor pay uh, we didn't know about vc funding honestly so we didn't know how do we make money uh, enough money so that the business becomes self sustainable because startups while we were getting traction they were fairly small right so it wouldn't make us enough money to be able to sustain and grow the company so um, one of the products that we built and this is a product that i built uh, myself was a school fees payment system that we thought that we thought that if we can digitize and go to some education institutes and convert them to accept fees through razor pay then we could make enough margin because school fees are in hundreds of crores we could make enough margin and it's the, an annuity business because once you business. get a school and a kid like you know yeah. possibly for years they paying fees they paying fees and then you can get a college and college will be in 500s of crores and stuff like that so if you can get any of those and you can make let's say 0.5% 1% margin on that this is great because the example that you're giving is typically how many young entrepreneurs look at markets yep. that on the face of it everything is right everything it's a great right. market right what went wrong because i know that this is still not properly solved education institutes are the hardest people to sell to <laughs> like you can't sell to them because you can't find the right decision maker in a lot of folks and i respect a lot of companies who have built for education institutes and are able to scale up i have tried it uh, and i uh, believe me i would never want to build for an education institute because um, we built this product it was an amazing product it was much better than what schools use it was much better than what colleges use and it was just me and shishang we wrote the code entirely ourselves and then we started going to do sales when it was typical product philosophy that if we build a great product if it solves a lot of problems people will accept it right but and that is where a lot of product that standard product approach fails when you go out in the field and when you do go meet customers so we me and shishang would go on my bike uh, to education institutes and door to door literally and we had created a small pamphlet we'll give it to them and try to convince them and the worst part of selling to education institutes is not that they don't buy it they don't say no so you go to them and the guy says yes i like it speak to my principal the principal says i like it but i am not the decision maker speak to my trustee and the trustee says i like it but why should why should you earn 0.5% more why can't i earn charge 0.5% more fees uh so it became a big game of like chicken and egg that they didn't want to use us till we had enough traction or they didn't want to uh, they didn't want to use us till till we could convince parents to pay for it and parents wouldn't use it till all the till they could pay all kind of fees through it they don't want to pay just one fees on it it became a very complex sale and we realized that it's extremely hard to sell to education institutes so we literally shut that product down the repository still exists with razorpay but we have never taken it live we just shut it down completely because 
parallelly we started getting a lot more traction in startups so we moved all our energies to that and we shut this down this is a very interesting example and i just like to go back to something that you said earlier the yc philosophy of build something people want as a parent myself and as someone who's paid fees in very excruciatingly painful ways over the years who wants this in a school i don't think schools want it That's i don't think parents want it right i mean parents want it but schools are the ones who have to parents actually want it and that was our mistake right like that we considered parents as the customers but parents are not the ones paying for it like and not right. the ones taking the effort to deploy it the ones who are taking the effort to deploy it are schools and colleges and they don't want it like i remember meeting this guy who was the head of a college and i explained to this to him and he i said like he and he said who will pay for it i said we'll charge the parents for it he said how much will you charge and i said i'll charge 1% to my parent he said if parents are willing to pay 1% more fees why can't i charge 1% more fees the guy will come to my come to my college and pay fees anyway that's a very important point because i think schools and colleges know that parents have no option, no option. you don't have to give them a great experience whatever you do a parent will quietly go and do if yes. you say you have to do this you have to go stand in and line and do that if i ask him to come three times a day he'll come three times a day he'll not let his, no parent is going to take my student out because i don't provide online that's payments, right. right so that was the that was the big challenge and that is the that is where we missed on make something people want that the core customer base was the education institute and they didn't see any value in it thank you for that that was a very fascinating example what drives and motivates you on a daily basis <laughs> so very interesting question um yeah i think i think see motivations have changed over time um i think uh, in the early days um there are two major motivations right like one is to really create a name for ourselves like like just be able to create that okay we built something that stands out in the ecosystem and that's used by people and and the second in some ways was that create it uh, create something that gives us i'll say in some ways purpose that like that gives us purpose that like okay this is something that i can put my energies and whatever i have and the skills i have in the right form right i think over time of course the first part has gone away the purpose part still stays true the first part has gone away and it has changed to more of an impact question that like how big of an impact can i create now with with this opportunity that i have like like uh, so whenever i look back at every day at the ecosystem i see so many problems that are unsolved that raise up a could solve right so so many challenges that a founder faces that a startup owner faces that raise up a could solve that that they are still struggling through and and i think now it has become more on how much impact can raise up a have on all of these people uh, and can really change the way this ecosystem operates if i were to represent the analogy that you said of the problems that raise up a has solved and the problems that rezepe has yet to solve as a glass half full or half empty how do you normally see the world like you know do you see that there are more unsolved problems waiting out there or oh, do you definitely, see definitely definitely like see what we have solved so far is payments in a big way and in some form um, things around payments but uh, when i look at like when i speak to a startup founder today what are is biggest pain points what where is he spending most of his time in a st- still a startup founder when he's starting the company and for a long period of time still spends a lot of his time in managing just money uh, and and that is the aspect that i want to reduce right like uh, let me give a example and 
it might be a little detailed but like when you speak to a somebody in india and ask him like when you say that somebody has a business mindset what you typically mean is that he has a money mindset right that this guy can build a business because he knows how to manage money right it's different than us and uk right like when you say that this guy can build a clothing company you mean that he's really good at clothes when you say that this guy can build a logistics or marketing company, great at yeah, marketing he's really good at logistics or he's really good at marketing but in india when you want to build a business you have to be really good at managing money because that's the reason most of the businesses fail right and that part needs to change right like and the reason that exists is that 50 60% of your time if you're building a successful business is going to go into managing money in receiving money in making payments in getting access to credit in so many in raising funds if you're a startup founder if i can reduce that time from let's say 60% to 40% or 50% is will that extra time will go into his core business so if you are a e-commerce company it will go into differentiating ourselves on logistics differentiating ourselves on quality and stuff like that which is your core differentiator but today that time is going into managing money which is not your core differentiator which every business is reinventing again so if i can take that out and make razor pay the center of excellence for that then every business is on a same standing from a financial management perspective and they are spending their time on differentiating on the core proposition that is where we would want to take this up interesting so managing money dealing with money gets commoditized become something which is affordable and predictable yeah like to give an example of payment gateway as well right like when we spoke to startup founders they were spending a lot of time in just integrating and launching a payment gateway like three six months on that today it's as simple as okay payment you need a payment gateway just sign up with razor pay and be done with it it's not a differentiator anymore you anyone can sign up with razor pay pull that in and what differentiates you now is what you do after that right so the same thing we want to expand to the entire financial ecosystem right. is having friends at the workplace important i for me it has been very important um i when i started razor pay with shashank of course both of us were was friends the first eight nine people who joined us were all our college friends from iit roorkee either friends or juniors from iit roorkee and most of them are still in razor pay um i think and that's something that's very different about razor pay in some ways and when i compared a lot of startups in india and people have said a lot of times that it can cause its challenges but i can at least for me i've seen a significant advantage of having that that trusted group of people who you have seen and who have worked with and you have dealt with in college uh coming and working in your startup right from day one i, I think that that has been a really great experience for me there's a saying that we are the average of the five people that we spend the most amount of time with who are the five people that you spent like if you were to look at your day and create a pie chart and like you know which are the top five people <laughs> on an average day or week or month that you spend time with yeah of course a uh, lot with my my professional and personal time is like kind of haphazard but uh, uh, a lot of time would go with uh, with my senior leadership team at at resupe uh my personal friends uh, in some ways are the same people who i deal with at resupe as well so I, most of my friend circle is common with resupe so that's my earlier question about is having friends at work important that's a non question almost because yes. it yeah, crosses so over most of uh, most of my friends are f- people from resupe uh, especially uh, the f- people who joined early i have few friends outside razorpay as well but most of it is from razorpay so would it be safe to say that the five people that you spend most amount of time time with are all working at razorpay yes so i'll say 
in the day i spend most of my time with the senior leadership team which exists at razorpay my evenings or weekends would go with with the early folks at razorpay who still while they still work at razorpay we don't discuss razorpay as much when we spend time personally where does your fiance fit into this <laughs> she's not from razorpay she's <laughs> not yet in the five she's not yet in the five <laughs> all right if you could go back in time and change one thing that you did is there anything at all do you ever look at the world like that like is there anything that you wish you could have done differently yeah it's very hard like and i know this is this is a question that it gets asked a lot and i really don't know how to answer because i don't really look at the world that way like that's we, all right i've never gone back and said okay should i regret this or not like every decision is taken at a point of time it's probably the best decision at that point of time uh there are a lot I, of learnings I, that i have uh, at hindsight uh, that 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 this is how i would do things now knowing that this happened but no that's all right really like, like you know i share this world view as well if we were to dissect razorpay's success on the basis of either the philosophies or principles that it stands for what would be the top two or three principles that has enabled razorpay to get to where it is today hmm. i think the first thing i would say is a very very strong focus on culture um right i think and i know like a lot of companies discuss yeah this. i'm going to ask you to explain that because how like if you're saying that's you're actually this is the first reason you've mentioned i'm yeah. and i've heard this as well from a lot of other people that the employee culture at razorpay is really good what is it that you did or what is it that you set out to do was that something that you accidentally ended up doing was it something that you deliberately wanted to do because when two of you started a company It sounds very hard for me to think at that point that you were thinking, "Look, we got to build culture because you came from Schlumberger, he's coming from Microsoft. You have no shared concept of culture." So, how did this importance of culture come about for you and for Shashank and for Razorpay? Yeah, a very interesting question, and honestly, I would also look back and. But if I were to look back right now, like one thing is that I think YC played a lot of influence in that because they really talk about culture a lot. Um, but even before that i think as as we spent a lot of time in talk in both me and shashank read a lot about tech companies across the world so when we read about google when we read about like apple and a lot of these companies one thing that was very clear is that the company took the shape of what their culture was um and even though it was not very evident at the start but if you look at like what google is today or what facebook is today or what apple is today it's a reflection of what the culture that the founders set like that like if i were to pick up Sergey Brin and Larry Page, and make them build any company to look like Google, right? And and I think and that gave us a lot of focus that setting the right culture will decide how the company will look ten years out or fifteen years out or stuff like that. And I think because of that, we we were very deliberate with our culture that that this is the kind of culture we want to have, and this is the kind of culture we don't want to have. And like a lot of these are choices. Uh, there's no right and wrong, but just that we were clear that this is the right kind of culture that we would want. What in. what are some of those at Razorpay? Yeah, a lot of aspects. For example, one of the core tenets of our culture is transparency. Uh, that uh, that we focus a lot on creating a a transparent environment where people inside the company have very clear view um, of what's happening and what, where we're going. Like, um, and it comes out in various ways. Uh, we most of our discussions happen on Slack public channels and not on private channels. We have a strong discouragement of DMs policy that like don't do direct messages. Use public channels as much as possible to something as simple as that there will be no cabins in the office so 
so there are no cabins in the office more like or even more interesting there are no curtains in the office so like if you look at razor pay office no room in razor pay has uh, has frosting like all glasses are transparent and stuff like that these are small things but but it adds up together to create the culture right. of transparency that and the reason we have transparency as a core focus value is that we we believed that a lot of innovation happens from the ground like innovation happens bottoms up and that innovation cannot happen till you have information asymmetry if people don't have visibility in, if my sales guy doesn't have visibility in how my product is developed he can't come up with an idea on okay like can can we build a product this way and it will sell better right so information symmetry is important to have ground up innovation and that is the reason we created a lot of focus on having a transparent culture so that is one aspect of the culture there are a lot more sure. but one of the things that we were very focused on is that we were very deliberate with our culture and we still are that uh, that if if is it, it's is it going, codified is it codified it's codified but codifying almost every company does codify exactly. culture it does very little to actually propagate culture right so yes we for a lot of time it was not even no, my codified. question was allow me to rephrase my question was do you believe in codifying or is this more fluid and organic that culture is important but we are not going to try and very strictly define it and force everyone to follow it which one is it no no it is more second it doesn't mean that the culture doesn't get modified as a company scale so it has changed uh, there are aspects of our culture that have changed the way it reflects has changed as the company has scaled up but it is codified and it is very deliberate that okay this is the culture that we want and this is and if you are dis- deviating too much from it you need to find a way to uh, either work with that culture if you feel that the culture is not wrong discuss and we are happy to modify it but but you cannot deviate from that culture with the culture value being there then the culture loses value in some ways it's like code and a product yes right so you're building and maintaining the product and if you feel that the product is not serving your needs then build new features, new features deprecate modify it modify it and everything but but if you allow deviations from it then it loses all value which is a fork in yes. the concept of yes. so you don't want to do a hard fork yeah, on your and the fork cannot happen like in a non deliberate fashion that a Road moves in a certain different direction, and you have no control over it, and then you can't decide what shape your product is taking. So, you need to have always have a clear view on this is the shape that I want, and that might change, but you always need to have clear focus on what you want. All right, a lot of founders I meet always have this radar antenna going about spotting talented people when they are meeting people. How much of that is true for you? no it is a, a big focus for me it becomes harder as the org scales up uh, right so because as the org scales up a lot of amazing people at razor pay like who lead strong charters have come from the ground like somebody who joined us as a young sales associate is leading like the business unit a certain business unit or somebody who joined us as a young strategy associate is leading a senior a significant business unit so a lot of people have come from there i spent a lot of my time trying to talk to people and figuring those people out it becomes increasingly harder as the org scales up because you don't get to get as many touch points with 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 such people so right. I, my touch points start getting limited to senior folks only and it becomes extremely hard for to identify people on the ground who can share up what about outside razor pay when you're meeting people are you yeah. constantly like assessing yeah yeah it's a founder you're always hiring so <laughs> so and what are the things that folks have said like in like people have said that I, like for example one our Uh, a lot of our hires have come from people who have come to our events who have come to our conferences who have come to uh, meet us or who have have gone and met because you meet with them you hear them out and you feel that this is a guy you want on the team a lot of folks have been hired through that uh, all right it becomes increasingly hard again at scale but still happens a lot 
When you are interviewing people for important roles, are there any great open-ended questions that you ask people to assess how they think? Uh, there are a bunch of them. Um, I think uh, one of the questions I love uh, asking people is that like, um, like, and it's a very open-ended question that if if you are free for a uh, for let's say next two hours, if I let you be free in this room, what will you do? Um, and then, and I'm just trying to sense what what is the natural trait of this person. Some people will say I'll go read a book. Some people will say I'll sit on internet and just go on social media. Some people will say I'll talk to my wife. And the the reason I ask this question is to answer the second level question is why would you do that and not something else like like uh, it's the opportunity cost of time yeah opportunity cost of time. like how do they think about their time and how do how much they value their like if they have two hours do they think of the two hours as something that they should use or they think of the two hours as something they should waste uh, it's very interesting this is another founder ailment or illness which is how often does this happen to you that on a weekend someone calls you up and says come let's go out for a coffee and you're thinking, uh, two hours, I could have done this during two hours. There is this. Does this happen a lot to you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a very common. And, and how do you, because you know, the, what's your mechanism to kind of resolve that? Also, see, I think, but at the same time, like I have certain time periods that I've kept that it is for leisure. I shouldn't be used it for productive purposes because otherwise it becomes too. How successful are you at it? And what are those times? Uh, Sunday, typically for me. Uh, that is one day I keep aside only for. Uh, either to give to my fiance or to for leisure or to do something that has no productive value right like and and then how important. do you enforce that the boundary of sunday uh i'm able to enforce it fairly tightly like and that's why i have saturday as a spillover day so five days of the week are working anything that spills over from those five days goes into a saturday and that handles all my spillovers and then sunday continues to be free um it sometimes does get disrupted but most of the time i'm able to manage it because of this buffer day of saturday so i don't do anything uh, scheduled outside of five working days. Most of the non-scheduled or something that is spilled over goes into Saturday and then Sunday remains free. All right. How many investors did you pitch to before you folks landed your first VC investment? It, Approximately. Uh, if you'd called YC our first investor, then... Uh, no one. I mean, because you kind of... Because you kind of submit an application. It's a very yeah. different process. Uh, after... Uh, you're asking about institutional investors. Yeah. Yeah, so because we got a lot of angel investors, uh, pre YC, I spoke to at least seven, eight investors, and all of them, all of them rejected us because they said there are so many payment gateways, there's so many payment companies. Why are you getting into this space? It's an extremely competitive space, and there's no need for another payment. Are company. any of those investors on your cap table today? No, not any of them. All right. So all of them said no. Post YC, we almost every VC we spoke to was interested, and I think we got the first investor in very quickly after that. Alright. What's the one piece of advice that you'd give to entrepreneurs about fundraising that most people may not know or be aware of? I think it's a very simple advice that a lot of people give. I still see founders making that mistake. Don't build your business for fundraising. Um, there have been so many times in Razorpay that investors have spoken to me in the early days uh, and said that even in like mid, like even in when we are 100 million or so, that hey, if you build this product, I'll fund you. And if you build this thing, I'll give you money right now. Right? If you build a wallet, I'll give you a high valuation and money right now. If you build an UPI app, I'll give you a high valuation and money right now. And so on. It's and like so the forth. fashionable business model the fashionable, for the... fashionable, the hot piece of that day. 
they'll say it in different ways, not directly, but they'll say it in different ways that, hey, are you thinking of anything in the wallet space? Are you thinking of anything in the UPI app space and things like that? And I think in hindsight, we are so glad that we didn't pick any of those advices because if we had gone in any of those directions, we know we know a lot of companies who went in those directions and state that it ended up them with. And we are so glad that we didn't pick up any of those directions. Like, this, and, and that's why I say like the simple advice of building what your customers need is easy to say, but a lot of times it's very hard to follow because you have so much pressures from people outside your customer base, sorry, people outside your customer base telling you what you should be doing. What you said also is important because of the ability to say no to things, yeah. right? Whether it's no, we are not going to spend more time on this product or no, we are not going to go in this direction merely because everyone else is. Is there a way that you strengthen your own ability to stay say no or to coach your teams to be able to say no? I also go back to something that you said earlier, which is when you were speaking to schools, you did not hear a no. Yeah. And that's something very important because when people don't tell you a no, like for example, you meet a VC and they don't tell you a no, or you're meeting a customer and they don't tell you no, that essentially puts a monkey back on your back and you know you need to then say no. So how do you deal with this at Razorpay? How do you train people, coach people when to say no? So see, I think we, I listen to everyone. I think very rarely I have to say no on the face, right? Like, yeah, okay, we'll think about it and stuff, right? So you do what VCs typically do, that you listen to everyone. Um, but at the end of the day, like there has to be a process of you to do everything, right? So for example, we have a process of how do we build a new product and don't deviate from that process just because somebody said that this is exciting or somebody else said that this is the right thing to do. So I think the challenge happens when you try bypassing those processes. Hey, I had this amazing idea and I want my product team to build it tomorrow. I don't care about all of this evaluation and everything. That's that's what founders are in, like somewhere feel that motivation or that need to bypass all processes and run through with what they feel is the right gut feeling it's important to resist that urge, right? So we have a structured process on how a new product is evaluated and nobody, not even me, uh, has the right to bypass that process entirely and say that, forget everything that you know, I am saying it, do this. That becomes a that becomes a slippery slope because nobody in the company, including myself, should have that much power on what our resources are put in. And and I see even sometimes with even very large companies that the founders or the or the leadership team has the power to completely railroad the entire process because they feel that certain direction is right. And sometimes that can be, that can work out for them, but most often than not, it will not work out. And and that causes a lot of derailment. Uh, and that because of, because I am very strict and I'm, both me and Shashank are very disciplined about that, everyone else in the company remains disciplined about that. Like nobody else would feel the need to bypass the process that we've set for ourselves. What are your two to three most critical meetings every week? Every week. Um, I try to meet at least one customer every week um, on average. Uh, that's a pretty critical. And then you count that as one of the critical meetings of yeah, the week? Yeah, of course. Um, at least one customer every week. It could be more. Um, um, second is, of course, the meeting with my leadership team where I try to get a pulse of how they are thinking about where things are going and how and generally there'll be some message or some direction that I would want to give. Is this the equivalent of a staff meeting? Staff meeting. Uh, so in this meeting, you're both reviewing as well as looking ahead? It's not ahead. a meeting. It's a, it's it's a very just, open-ended meeting. You just catch up. We just meet. 
we discuss if there is any burning problems that we feel that all of us need to so this is not a structured meeting where there is an agenda circulated no, no everything agenda. is okay. no agenda sometimes there is there's something actually burning otherwise we just catch up we have an hour dedicated every month, week that we will just catch up and discuss if there's something burning we push it otherwise a lot of times we'll just come in and say everything is going fine and there's nothing and we'll talk about random stuff <laughs> uh uh the third one would like i mean scheduled uh in scheduled meetings i think the only other one i can talk about is uh i'll generally have at least one meeting with some functional head uh, and this will be different uh, this will be dependent on which area i feel that needs importance uh, that week uh, that i need to look at more closely so sometimes it will be with the sales head sometimes it will be with my marketing head sometimes it will be the ops head somebody else it depends on what is and a lot of times that outcome comes out from that unstructured meeting that okay this area needs a lot of intervention so you should speak and see where i can get in all right what in your words is the value that you and only you as ceo add to the company <laughs> i think the biggest value i add to the company it happens because of um the side that i have from top is unblocking uh things um a lot of as we grow larger and larger a lot of things get stuck in the entanglement between functions and processes and structures and the biggest value add i can do is just get into that and unblock it and then unblocking can happen by bringing people on the same page sometimes by changing the structures or changing the process because the process is becoming the bottleneck sometimes it will require a larger change in terms of like say it requires a change of the strategy or org design uh to make it happen but that's the biggest value i can add all right what metrics do you obsess over most internally at resobay yeah so of course the uh, first one is the core business metrics um, sorry i'm going to restrict you because otherwise you'll give me many if you had to pick just two metrics and you know for the next one month nobody at your company would give you any other metric other than just these two metrics which two metrics would you pick that makes it a lot harder <laughs> uh i'll pick uh, if it was for a limited yeah um, for the next 30 days uh nps and enps uh, will be the two metrics right like the core nps of course that's the highest and most important metric it's the hardest to move as well uh, which is what our customers like about us and of course we break it down into multiple sections our nps for our sme customers and enterprise customers and mid market customers and stuff like that internet first non internet first there's so many slicing and dicing that happens but nps is a very most critical metric uh, for us uh, the second i would say is enps which is the employee employee nps employee nps, NPS. NPS that we break down mm. This is very interesting because you did not give one of those hard this thing like its revenue because it's you broke it down to two <laughs> right but even then the the fact that you picked two nps which is essentially about customer satisfaction and employee satisfaction yep. which is very interesting and i i, I want to go deeper into that how since when have you been tracking nps and how frequently do you poll it like for example if you said for the next one month does it mean you're constantly polling customers and employees internally yeah yeah in multiple ways and multiple forms nps is tracked almost on a daily basis uh, we have surveys and um, customer response surveys esat surveys so many more things that added together the we have break it uh, like so nps at least for the early days we did used to track it scientifically like it was more of a feel on the ground and 
and this is the time and like this is when also things are very hunky dory in early days right so you don't have to worry about it as a metric in last 2 3 years our regress our uh, aggressiveness on this has gone up and i think it changed what triggered it covid um covid is suddenly expanded broadly into like like a, we had a massive scale up as a company like a lot of customers came on board suddenly and in some ways our nps suffered a lot so our traditional way of tracking and measuring nps just failed and it went downhill um significantly um we're still doing well in terms of numbers what was the traditional way and traditional way was that we would do a month once in months or once in three months survey All right. we would track basic metrics around nps we would get a feel from the ground by talking to people on how our nps right. is doing we'll track the number of tickets coming in and stuff like that but uh, in covid like when the sudden influx of customers came in all of those metrics failed because by the time those metrics showed us this thing was going bad things were already very bad uh, and and it took a lot of time for us to recover out of that um, we had to literally for for the first period for for a lot of time we didn't even accept that things have gone bad honestly right? like because all our the metrics that we would track were showing green but but i would know this because of anecdotal data that some founder would ping me that hey i have I'm trying to do this and nobody is listening to me some founder would ping me and i think my connectivity directly with founders and customers helped a lot because i would get those signals anecdotally and when when data and anecdotes don't match is typically the data which is wrong uh, and uh, one of those conversations was with us we got on yes, a call we once got on a call so our recurring subscriptions broke and like, yeah yeah a lot of customers right and and uh, i'll not be shy about it like in 20 no. um 2020 late uh that is when we realized so when we made this then things started weakening and 2020 late i think november december is when we accepted that things have gone bad uh and then we need to turn it around and now and at a large scale when you have such so much influx and the influx was still coming in because 2021 again uh covid was still waging through a lot of influx was coming in and we have so much influx coming in fixing nps becomes extremely hard because it, the easiest way to fix nps at the point of time is be to pause on boarding that you can't do uh every other way becomes a slip like 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 it's like trying to catch a tiger by its tail like it becomes extremely hard uh to go get ahead of the curve uh from it because there's so much influx coming in and any change that you want to do has causes sometimes causes more influx any change that fails causes more influx so it took us a lot of time to trying to start getting things back on track um i think um early this year is when we things started getting back properly on track uh from are either of these numbers disclosable your nps score or your enps score uh, nps um, is disclosable i think we went from um, a a positive 50ish range to yeah. minus 12 um and then we went to uh we fixed it a lot and we went to let's say 10 uh i think early this year we went to 30 so it's still not back to let's say pre covid levels but it's in a decent shape for a b2b company all right um, inside razorpay what are some of the phrases that you're known for <laughs> uh get it done by yesterday <laughs> uh let's get it done by yesterday uh report it that way right so that's that's i'm known for a lot that people ask me when do we want to do this we should do it by yesterday so all right what are the three most common adjectives that your colleagues would use to describe you mm i think uh, impatient i'm always in a hurry uh and even people make fun of that i speak really fast uh, you probably would have noticed it uh because i'm always in slight bit of a hurry 
um, in getting through my point and getting through things. Um, the second thing uh, is uh, I I uh, I don't know how would they put it, but I I spend a lot of time going through the metrics, um, right? So like that is how they describe that. Okay, detail oriented. Detail oriented or like we're very metric focused. All right. Is that like you spend a lot numbers of time, focused numbers right. uh, and talk a lot about numbers. And lastly, um, like um, a few people would say this um, uh, specifically that uh, I talk a lot to people about how they feel, and uh, and this is something that said that it's very different that uh, when when I am doing a one on one or when I'm doing a chat, I spend uh, like generally, the, especially with my leadership team, at least the five seven minutes talking about. How they feel? How are they feeling generally? This is something I learned from an investor. Like this one investor in particular, Ribbit. Um, uh, almost every investor, when they would talk, they would ask, "How's the business doing?" Uh, I had a first connection with Mickey from Ribbit, and he asked me, "How are you doing?" And I started telling, "Okay, this is Razorpay doing this." He said, "No, no, no. I'm asking, how are you doing?" And and I think that's a habit I've really copied. I'm going to ask you this question: How are you feeling? <laughs> no. Uh, Good, really good. It's um, uh, optimistically cautious. <laughs> All right. What? Acha. A uh, very important question: Office or work from home? Office. All right. What would you have done in a productive day that makes you feel really happy and satisfied at the end of it? Like you're going to bed and like, wow, that was a good day. I was able to um, either. Uh, unblock or review any new initiatives that we are doing. If I were to unblock like two or three things during the day, I feel really productive. All right. Is there any part of your job you wish you didn't have to do? <laughs> uh, media management. <laughs> <laughs> Has Razorpay ever had any near death moments? Uh. Hard to put it in near death way because I can always see how you would come out of it, but yeah, there there have been uh, in early days there were a lot like like I think we had like let's say one or two bank partnerships and one bank partner said I don't want to work anymore we are shutting down our acquiring business that happened uh, and we had just one bank partner and like hundreds of our merchants would suddenly stop working next day because this bank was gonna pull the plug so there have been a lot of those cases. All right. How do you manage to avoid the sunk cost bias? Yeah, that's because that's, you put in a lot of effort yeah. into a product, into a new division, and like you said, you're emotional about it. Yeah. You want it to succeed, but at some point, you have to walk away from it. But the sunk cost bias prevents you from doing it. Yeah. It's hard, like because it is not a logically. It's very easy to say that logically does it make sense or not. But um, also because there are no right answers. Yeah, and emotionally, when you connect with somebody, it's always easy to justify with data, with just numbers that why something should continue. You can always find like these ten customers still need us, uh, and we there'll be more customers like that and stuff like that. I think the way we do it is that a that focus on customer that if there are not enough customers believing in what we are saying, then it's not right, and b giving it a clear and hard deadline. That by this date we need to take a call one way or the other. So by this date, if you're not getting, let's say, two hundred customers for this product, then this product doesn't work. Do whatever it takes. Right? How often do you change your mind? 
about important very, things. That, that's one thing that people say about me. It's very hard to change my mind. <laughs> so, are you things. a strong opinions, loosely held kind of person, or like weak opinions, strongly held? Which 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 camp do you weak fall opinions, into? Weak opinions, strongly held. That I, I, where, there's limited things that I have very very strong opinions on, but on those things, it's very hard to change my opinion. Like I'll, this is something that my leadership team also says at times that it's very hard to change your opinion on things, especially in a setting. Uh, it can happen over a period of time. But you can't. It's very hard to change that opinion in one setting or in one discussion. If I hold very, if I hold it, like in a lot of cases, I don't have a very strong opinion, and there you can easily give me any direction. How do you? What's your most reliable method to learn something new, which like you've never like? It's it's completely different from something that you've done in the past. But you need to learn it. Is there a method? Practice is the easy answer, but I think the way I go about it is just. Generally, uh, trying to speak to somebody who's expert at it, uh, like trying to find a mentor for something. So let me give an example. Like when we started the company, um, sales is an area where it's something I had to build because Shashank is going to take care of product and tech. And I had decided I was going to take care of sales and, and business. And I had zero idea of how to do sales. So uh, uh, in the early days, I would spend a lot of time with this one guy I had found who would be a mentor of sort who would give me a lot of guidance. And then we hired a senior Salesperson who essentially became my mentor, uh, and I would go to a lot of almost every meeting with him, and learn from him on what he does and try to replicate that. So finding a mentor has really worked well. What's the best time or method to give you feedback? Yeah, uh, this is again a big challenge uh, for a founder that like typically you don't get to hear feedback, and this is something that again I've tried to incorporate a lot uh, that. Especially in my reviews and stuff, and I'm doing like say a month, like a quarterly review or a month uh, or a half month review with my leadership. I would keep some time aside to ask them for feedback. And a challenge has been that when initially when I would ask for feedback, people don't give feedback because they don't know how to give. Again, especially I don't know it comes from Indian culture world. People don't think about giving feedback to your superior. Right? They don't even think in that lens. So when I would ask feedback, they'll say. This is not happening in this vertical. This is not happening in that vertical. I said I'm asking for my feedback. Like, what can I do? The same question about feelings. When yeah. somebody asks you how are you feeling, you start talking about how the company how is the doing, company how is the doing. projects are doing. So when I would ask for feedback, people will start talking about things around that this is not happening well, but not about me in general. And and it's not that they don't want to say. It's not that they're afraid of it. They have not even thought in that dimension that okay that there's an op- that I can also give feedback to. Like this is this godly feeling or authoritative feeling. In India, and it comes from the way our school system works and stuff. That that your superior is the right person, and you, whatever he says and does is right, and you just have to follow. So there's no opportunity to ever give feedback back to your parents or your teachers, in some cases your bosses. Uh, so so that becomes extremely hard. The way I try to drive it now is by asking setting specific time. And now because I've asked it so many times, people come prepared now that I'm going to ask this question. So what can they say? Um, but otherwise, I think it's. Like any one-on-one setting is easier. Is there? To I'm going to ask you: Is there something interesting that you can share with us that you've received as feedback from one of your, I mean, colleagues or direct reports in recent yeah, times? A lot of these, like for example, my impatience. I've received a lot of feedback that, for example, when I do a one-on-one, a lot of times I'll, um, I'll, quick, I'll be quick and finish it off in twenty, thirty minutes, even when we have an hour, and the and people feel unsatisfied by it that you didn't give me at least an hour a week, right? Like. Uh, we need that much time, so I've got that feedback a lot of times. I oh. get easily distracted. Uh, I've got that feedback that sometimes I um, 
I'm doing a one-on-one, we are talking and it's not exciting enough for me and I would take out my phone and start doing something and I've got that feedback that that you are you're very distracted uh, in conversation. So a lot of things have come out like that. All right. I'm going to ask you the question that you ask a lot of other people, which is if you were locked in a room for the next 24 hours with no internet, <laughs> what would you do? With no internet? <laughs> And make it more complex than I, what I give people. <laughs> I let them surf on the web as well if they want to. It's it's still is um, yeah. um if I have article generally I have some articles downloaded on my phone um from various media houses and blogs. So I'll generally spend my time reading those articles. Uh, that happens typically even in airports and flights. I'll read an article. If I am in the mood for some leisure, then I'll watch a TV series or something that like. If what I kind have, of TV series do you watch? Uh, a lot of them, billions, suits, uh, okay. are very, are my two most favorite one. It's not All like right. I just watch those kind of shows, Got it. but a lot of them. All right. Six out of 10 times when you're out eating, what do you end up ordering? Indian. I love. Within Indian, what? North Indian. Within North Indian, what? Rajasthani like? food. <laughs> All right. Great. Thank you. What does focus mode look like for you? Or deep work mode? Yeah. Focus mode uh, typically for me is um, when I would be working on, let's say, um, a deck or something that needs a lot of, like, say, my board deck. I'm spending a lot of time reviewing that. And I would have to, so I'm, I'm very focused. Like, I don't need, a, like, anything. I don't need a special room or anything. I can sit in between noise and be completely focused. Like, I don't get distracted when I don't want to be distracted. So... So I can get focused anywhere. I could get focused in middle of an airport. I could get focused in middle of, let's say, a party. That's enviable. Yeah, and it, people sometimes get pissed by it because sometimes I find a problem and I get really focused around it. And and let's say my, the best example would be my fiance. She's sitting right there and she'll try to talk to me, and I'll not even like I'll not even recognize that she's trying to talk to me. Like it, I get that deeply engrossed in things. That's going to change soon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sometimes people get really angry about it. That hey, I'm talking to you. Where are you? And I'm completely lost in that um, whatever right. I'm doing. On a scale of one to ten, how happy are you with life? I'm pretty happy with life. I mean, on a scale, I would say eight, eight thirty. Okay. What do you do outside of work or even within work that makes you lose all sense of time? Hmm. Uh, outside of work, I still like whenever I tinker with tech just for fun, it really makes me lose all sense of time. So, give us an example for of example, the last recently time. Recently, I did. picked up a project to build a PC at home. Uh, just wanted to do it for fun. And I spent the entire weekends just building that and like. Weekends after weekends, just building that. Is it uh, the pleasure of being able to start something finite and actually drive it through to con- conclusion within a finite window? Is that what? Yeah, the and also joy for is? doing something which really doesn't have an outcome. Like you're just doing it for the fun of it. Like I was building a PC, like not because I I do some gaming and stuff, but not because of that. I was just doing it because of the fun of tinkering with tech that I always love, and that is something I used to do since college days and since school days. That I would just spend my time tinkering with tech with no expectation of an outcome. Just do it because I'll feel proud at the end of the day that, hey, I did this myself. All right. Which morning of the week do you look forward to the most? <laughs> Interesting. Um, Tuesday. Why Tuesday? Monday, generally, I spend my time getting a sense of what's happening and getting a sense of where things are. And Tuesday is when my actioning typically begins. Okay. All right. 
Do you read books? A little, not as much as Shashank. But <laughs> <laughs> what kind of books do you read when you manage to find the time? Uh, typically non-fiction. Um, sometimes very rarely fiction, but mostly non-fiction. Thank you so much for your time, Harshil. It's been really great speaking to you, and thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much, Rohan, and very interesting conversation. <laughs> Hi, it's me again. I'm so glad that you made it to this end of the show. If you enjoyed it and want more, please do not forget to hit follow. And if you're on Spotify, you will need to press the bell icon so that the app can send you notifications each time we drop a new episode. And if you have 10 more seconds, please do rate us. It really helps the show find its stride. More people like you. And of course, if you have any feedback, please do write to us at podcast@theken.com. That is p o d c a s t s at the rate the hyphen ken dot com. Thank you for listening. Catch you after Diwali. Have a happy one.